0: Dealer, I'm feeling it hit
1: me. Welcome to the grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible no limit hold of hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult. As hands like ace king are removed from the grid whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash or just interested in absurd scavenger hunts we're gonna have some fun you got
0: the cards dealer i'm feeling it hit me yeah I got
1: Hello everyone! We are back on the grid with one Nick Schulman, a World Poker Tour Champion and three-time World Series of Poker bracelet winner with over $13 million in live caches. Nick is a widely acclaimed poker commentator known for his soothing voice, incisive poker analysis and vast vocabulary. He plays high stakes mixed games in Vegas, but today Nick is bringing us a no limit hold'em hand from a cash game in Nick's hometown, New York City. He also offered to help me click off one of the very toughest hands, a hand that most of us really aren't. Getting too involved with at all. Nick, thanks for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me on, Jen. That was a very kind introduction. Happy to be here.
1: Great to have you on. Can you tell us a little bit about where and when this hand took place? So this hand
0: took place in New York City, somewhere around 2008, maybe. It was in a home game um, in a like a somebody's apartment who was unknown sort of like high there were a few high stakes games that sprouted up in new york this was one of them
1: a lot of us haven't played in these like private new york home games like what was the location like
0: it was a very nice apartment on park avenue in the 30s definitely fancy upscale place the stakes were very big the game would start out at 50 100 no limits, something like that but everybody would kind of buy in really deep and uh, by the end of the night, I mean it was it, it could get really out of hand i think I think we were playing four eight hundred at this point. That's usually how it goes. The blinds would just get kicked up or straddles, sleeper, straddles were on and uh, yeah, there were a few people in this game that really liked the fire
1: and who are some of the villains in the in the lineup?
0: Man, I mean, <laughs> these guys new york, mostly New York players who um I don't I don't really think people would kinda know. There was a record producer played who's passed away. Rest in peace. Alan Meltzer. He was a legend. Cup there was a a pack of guys who were referred to as the Jews. That's just what they were called. They were from Brooklyn, Yarmukas. They were in there battling. There was actually a player who played whose nickname was the King of the Jews. It was known I have some, you know, some Jewish lineage, but I was not grouped in as a member of the official member of the Jews. There were a couple guys from Jersey who kind of, they'll just name, you know, remain nameless. Nobody really knew what they did for a living, but they were in there. There were some grinders, hedge fund pl- guys, you know, a major city. So you could imagine like the people that gravitate to that sort of game. But it was a, you know, a very diverse mix of of players you could sort of picture in a game like that.
1: Nick, um can you set up what actually happened in the hand? Who was the villain and how did it kick off?
0: Yes. His hand was played against a gentleman named Brooklyn Isaac. He's, you know, name was Isaac, he's from Brooklyn. Four eight hundred, no limit, three handed at the time. It's about seven in the morning. The game started off at fifty one hundred and then gotten kicked up progressively through the night. We're on the button, Isaac is in the big blind. We have nine, seven suited. We make it 2,000 pre-flop. Isaac makes it 6,000. We call, both quite deep. The flop comes nine, nine, three, rainbow. Isaac leads 5,000. We make it 18, here we go, trips. Isaac is pretty sticky. He continues, sweet. Fern is a five. Bringing a backdoor flush draw, Isaac checks. We bet thirty-five thousand. Isaac calls, and at this point, it's really looking like Isaac has an overpair, some sort of a pocket pair, even Ace King is possible, Ace Queen. Because we, I, I was very splashy at the time. I had a nice image with with Isaac and a lot of these guys, and just in general, there were a lot of big pots at the time with not. A tremendous amount of hand strength, and I just—long story short—I really felt Isaac was calling the river. The river was fairly irrelevant, not a spade. I think it was a jack or a queen. Like I guess that's not totally irrelevant. He can make a full house now to beat us, but he can have so much stuff. He would inflate the pot pre-flop with stuff—all pocket pairs, ace highs. He checks.
1: Probably a queen, though.
0: Yes, <laughs> correct. It, it was. It was definitely a queen.
1: So he checked again, and then what, what? did you decide about the sizing here? I went
0: big. I decided he was calling. I went roughly a one hundred thousand. I might have gone a little bit less, but that, this hand was like a long time ago. But I just remember the gist. I went roughly a hundred. Isaac called. I flipped over my hand, and I had Jack four offsuit. I had had nine seven suited the hand before. I mean, phew. as soon. <laughs> And yes, the river was did not connect with the jack in in any way. But I just remembered that it was a brick, and I thought I had trips. Here we go, and uh, man, I had jack four. I had no pair, no draw. I was just barreling away against the player I knew was calling.
1: Wow! And what did he have? He had tens. And what was his reaction when you flipped over the jack four offsuit? Did you indicate that you made a mistake, or did you just keep it in, in, to yourself?
0: No, I, I had a meltdown. I, uh, I, I. I started pacing around the room. He was laughing. I mean, I was kind of laughing at a point. It was kind of disconcerting for, for a brief moment, you know, because I really thought I had 9-7. I was playing this whole hand under the presumption that I had one hand to just flip up two entirely different cards. It was pretty shocking. I think I kept playing for another hour or two, but I, I definitely took a little break, walked it off. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was the previous hand or two hands before, but basically I ordered a drink and I was just thinking about the hand and, and off we went. Crazy.
1: How would you have played the hand if you had Jack-4 offsuit? It's a good
0: question. I might have just folded pre-flop. I, I did like to get in there and scrap, but the Jack-4, there was a lot of three-betting going on. It was kind of annoying. But had I opened, I mean, let's take the three-bet Pre-flop out of the equation, because I would have folded to that. But uh, if I had gone one street on something like 993 versus Isaac, and he continued, I would just shut this one down. I mean, there would have been no going three here with that one. And uh, yeah, wow.
1: Well, thankfully, years later, you helped me click off a hand that is really, really difficult, because, you know, people don't have a lot of dramatic big pots with Jack four offsuit normally. So if you know, you ask me like the 150 K got a good story out of it.
0: Well, I know it feels almost a little disingenuous to the Jack four because I, you know, I stumbled into the hand by accident. I'm sure somebody took a Jack four offsuit to the streets knowingly. And that story deserves to be told, but uh, you know,
1: (laughs) I kind of assumed when you sent me this hand history that you had thought that the players to your left, the dynamics were such that you would like looked at the Jack four offsuit and opened it and then just forgot mid-hand. But it sounds like maybe you just didn't look at your cards at all.
0: I may have looked at, I, I may have peeled it. I, I really don't know. I was so immersed in the hand and from the flop on, I thought I had 9-7 suited. So it was like, and then I remembered that I had had it either the previous hand, maybe the previous hand, it, was, it just went fold and I shot it up pre and one, but it was a very quick hand. Where I, I know, like I remember seeing the nine seven of hearts, and then I thought back that I had had it the hand before. Did I ever look at the jack four and then simply forget post flop? I'd like, I, I'd like to think that didn't happen, but but it very well might have done. I, I don't I can't say I can't say for sure. I just don't know. But I played the entire hand, thinking I had nine seven.
1: You're right. It makes more sense. Like the vision of Jack Four Off never popped into your head. Therefore, the 9-7 suited kind of remained in that part of your brain.
0: Yeah, mostly when I look at a hand, I then play the hand thinking that I have that hand. I mean, (laughs) but I don't know.
1: So in in this game, were you playing really, really long sessions?
0: This one was played at around 7 a.m. and the game had started at 7 p.m. And I've never been too much of a marathon guy i get tired and i I do get foggy ish so this was a 12-hour session but i was normally in bed by one or two so it was kind of like i mean don't get me wrong i played a lot of 36-hour sessions in new york when when the time was right and this one was nothing too crazy but i was definitely tired but i was all right i don't think it was that like i was I was focused. I was. We were playing very high stakes, no limit. It wasn't like I was delirious or anything. I wasn't drinking. I mean, I was in there sipping coffees, thinking I had nine and seven and just having Jack for a lot for piles, like you know.
1: And how do you recover from like losing 150k? That just does like that like just stick with you, or you just play through it.
0: I just play through it. Honestly, it doesn't, it didn't stick with me too much. There were a lot of great games at the time in New York for starters. So I was just constantly in action. And I mean, I don't know I, it's I've, I sort of, I guess, just kind of have become a little bit numb to it. That one did stick with me a bit, but it happens.
1: So if you did have nine, seven suited, uh, you're happy with the way you play the hand you'd play it similarly today or something a little different, you think?
0: I think so definitely player opponent wise I think it was a it was a good choice when you sort of know that your opponent probably has a good hand and is probably calling it's always a question of what is the most amount of chips you can extract responsibly without sort of inducing a fold where they would they would call really high amounts but if you go too high they'll fold so maybe I really, if I had really established, if I was using more overbets, maybe just as a part of my game, maybe I could have even gone for more. But yeah, solid line, good choice. We put a bunch of chips in, you know, thinking they were calling. And uh, the only part of the hand again, that <laughs> crashed, but uh, we just didn't have the hand we thought we had.
1: Yeah, amazing. Great story. So now you live in Las Vegas, and obviously you play a lot of mixed games, Bobby's Room. What do you miss most about these New York games in these New York days?
0: I really miss the camaraderie of it all. Just the kind of the vibes of it, I guess. It was a more sort of There were some funny people in those games i miss being the best player by you know leaps and bounds as well no disrespect to new york i love you guys but it was one of these situations i I mean to call a spade a spade naturally playing in great high stakes no limit games and fancy apartments in new york city is you know not too bad was doing that for a while but just like a lot of the people i played with i saw them week in week out for years and we were just like you know we were buddies there were a lot of good times in those games
1: So how did you get into those games in the first place? I just kind
0: of weaseled my way into the club scene. There were some underground clubs when I was 17 or 18, and I was playing online already, and I got the itch to play live, and I just sort of put some feelers out there. I don't remember exactly how I found my first poker club in New York, but from there, I started bouncing around the clubs, and basically this... These home games kind of became an extension of the club scene when I was fairly young. There were big no-limit home games sprouting up. I was 18 or 19 at this point, and I was kind of doing well online, and I was sort of beating up on the lower stakes kind of club games, so I had a little reputation of being a pretty good player, and I got into these home games, gave some pieces out, became friends with some people that I'm still friends with who were living in Vegas now. And, and uh, yeah, we just, we attacked every, every week. We were just in there.
1: Did you usually play on credit or was there cash on the tables? Almost
0: always credit. There was only cash on the table at some of the smaller games, like one, $2, no limit two, five, no limit. There were clubs where, where you would go and just post up. You literally buy chips with cash, but most of the home games were credit.
1: Did you see Molly's Game, by the way? And how accurate did you feel like that portrayed, like, the cash game scene in New York compared to, like, what you experienced?
0: I did see Molly's Game. It was fairly accurate. Of course, some of the people that they portrayed or represented, people that I know very well. I mean, it's a movie, so it's it's hard not to have some laughs when you know these people, but it was pretty accurate. Did you enjoy it? I thought it was a good movie. Some of the courthouse scenes were a little much for me. I mean, some of the legal stuff was, without getting into specifics, some of the ways that they portrayed certain characters, it was hard not to kind of whatever, but they they have every right for some dramatic kind of, you know, liberties. And I enjoyed the movie, yeah.
1: Some of our past conversations have inspired some of the ideas for this podcast. Like the time you told me about visualizing Every cell in the poker grid, like you visualize all 64 squares of the chessboard. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Sure. I mean, we're trying to visualize one's entire range, both the entire just range of cards that can exist and also just your opponent's specific range or ranges in general. It's, it's an essential part of playing No Limit at this point, I think, or at the very least an idea that should be considered.
1: So what does it look like when you say visualize? Is there an actual image in your head?
0: I would say that it's more combinations and and kind of relevant sort of data that I can extract from the range than the range itself. I don't really have colors going off or or kind of a, a chart floating in the air, but sometimes a little bit. But again, I think it's more just kind of extracting what's doing what and kind of grouping it.
1: So, it's more just like chunks of data that are so well rehearsed that you recall them very quickly but not necessarily in some visual form like you would in chess
0: I like to think that the the sort of calculations worth going after i'm I'm kind of getting on as quickly as I can in a lot of no limit spots.
1: got it, yeah, and that's so important now that they use shot clocks in so many of these tournaments, right?
0: Yes, absolutely, part of a training regiment or. When you're thinking about spots, if you're playing in tournaments with shot clocks, you need to get right after it. And the ability to calculate quickly uh, is important. Yeah. Or to have simpler strategies that that you can kind of go upon in a variety of spots is nice as well with shot clocks.
1: So I know you love both the theory of poker and the art of reading people. How some of your struggles been with integrating them together and like integrating theory in a way that didn't damage or interfere with your instincts?
0: I was talking about the golf swing with somebody. He's a really sharp guy, a great golfer. And there's there's so many technical aspects of golf, but he was like, you know, don't forget to just hit the ball. And I was like, yeah, thanks. You know, it's like, I like that. I know what he meant. When I'm playing my best poker, I feel in a way I'm not losing sight of that, if that makes sense. I don't want to over-theorize spots when I really feel like I just kind of know what's right. But it's tricky and it it definitely depends on the level of opposition and and just the nature of the spots because you can over rely on instinct in lieu of knowledge or just calculating or, or kind of analyzing the spot. And it could be a bit of a cop out towards really figuring out what's going on. I think the better that I've gotten with poker theory and the more into it that I've gotten, if anything, I've under relied on my instincts. Slightly, maybe in spots that I like to find that balance, but it's just it's just complicated. I don't even know. I, I'm just reviewing the hands and trying to like trying to keep it going. When when I do know, I'm thankful for those moments and and I go with it. And I think sometimes the spidey sense just comes together. I've been playing a long time. I've seen a lot of live hands, live spots. So there's times I just you know what I mean. I like, like I really believe in the read and I go with it. But those spots aren't that common anymore. Even when When they come up now versus certain players, it's, ah, they're tricky. They're kind of throwing you fake stuff. It's all a part of live poker, obviously, but it's tough to say what falls where, I think.
1: Are you saying people are getting better at disguising their tells than they used to? And when you were in these New York cash games, how big of a reliance did you play on those live reads and and tells?
0: Some of these guys were just tellbags, man. I mean, it was like, I just knew. I had super user mode turned on at times, and same for tournaments. Not trying to sound super arrogant, in, in certain games, like you can really feel it with timing tells, with uh, just the way that they look at certain cars, the way if somebody starts genuinely heaving, or or the heart is going bizarre. There's just there are times where it can be crazy, and it could be a little more subtle, still timing stuff, but just kind of subtle that maybe comes with experience or you know i don't know again it's hard to quantify but yeah i think in some of these high roller events from bobby's room the the glaring oreo cookie kind of tells are few and far between so the reads are a little bit deeper than that but the theoretical considerations kind of take most of of my attention and then if a tell it shows itself it's like terrific
1: Now, back in the New York cash games, because it's so long ago, those games aren't, the exact games aren't there anymore. Can you tell us like, what was the type of tell that was like the most profitable for you that people didn't really know about at the time?
0: I don't know if I have a specific one. It's tough. I just felt like I kind of knew where people were at sometimes to a very kind of condensed situation, but they really varied. Timing tells are big, the quick call on the draw that one is like can exist in certain games when people look at the flop and just have sort of a clear reaction like again tough to sort of just spell out but just watch them you know try to be observant when you play with the same players over and over which kind of isn't so much of a thing in live tournaments you do come across the same players but in a home game kind of environment where people people are playing with each other tells to me aren't totally black and white there's so many different kind of it's just you just start to read each other physically there can be so many different things people do some people freeze when they're bluffing but freezing it can be very subtle it could be chewing gum and you're not chewing it anymore you know just putting a drink down but kind of putting it down perfectly and then just not moving but then you got guys that are doing that not bluffing and they understand that they're They're kind of feigning that sort of concern that one might have when when they're bluffing. But when you play with the same people over and over, you just got to, you know, you got to study them.
1: Now, you've been through a lot of ups and downs in your own poker career. Can you think of a moment where you realized that you were doing something wrong and you really had to just like completely reconfigure it? Because I assume that to survive and thrive in the game for so long, there were times where you had to look in the mirror and realize something was totally off.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of those moments. I think for me, the biggest turning point in my game was when I stopped taking myself too seriously and just just started to take a harder look at things and, and kind of, I guess, try to be more humble. I mean, but it's sort of like, how can we be sure we're doing that? I don't remember exactly... You know, it's been a long journey and process, but I know I had moments of reflection and I put a lot of work into trying to be objective, trying to be less defensive. Kind of, I used to be very defensive for reviewing hands and, and they would all lead to arguments. I never played a hand wrong. I always had a million reasons why it could have been right. And I always sort of implied that I was seeing much deeper things when it just wasn't totally clear. I was just, kind of unable to to handle criticism or i got very adversarial when we review again i was just so competitive and uh once i sort of let go of that and really tried to just be objective and not hold myself in too high of a regard and just be humble and analyze and and just work on really understanding what's going on i saw not only an improvement in my game but just an improvement in my my kind of just happiness as as a games player for a living it's a bit of poker no less it's swingy there's i mean it's it's gambling for a living it can be stressful but pursuing it like that just made it a little bit easier for me and i mean i'm i'm thankful that that at least that came around somewhat but it's a process still
1: yeah, I know what you mean. So you're saying that like when you reviewed a hand that you might have not played as well as you could or that you misplayed in some way, instead of kind of trying to justify it when you talked about it with a friend, you would try to give like an accurate representation of what you were thinking at the time rather than what you, you know, the best justification of the play that you made. I think that's really interesting. And that's something that you see in chess a lot too where people will sometimes make up, you know, make up variations that they saw that they didn't see. Right.
0: It can be a little embarrassing at times. But uh, if you make a blunder in poker or chess, I mean, whatever led to that blunder is what you should be looking at, not phantom variations or like stuff at the poker table that wasn't going on either. What happened really to cause whatever happened? and How can we move forward in a productive way?
1: Do you think that really great poker players have a greater tolerance for embarrassment? Because, I mean, I I think about this Jack 4 offhand, and I think about how a lot of people in poker are, especially if they're not playing super high stakes, are very motivated by looking good. I mean, stakes relative to their role. They want to be proud of how they played and think that the other people at the table think that they play well. So is that a characteristic that a lot of really great players have, that they're not as motivated by embarrassment and looking good?
0: That's a good question. I've seen both for sure. I've seen great players who want to kind of show you that they're great and they do get sensitive and embarrassed when, the, when they don't kind of look great. And I know other great players who really don't care at all. They're just kind of lost in, in theory land playing and they just know the way the cards work. And they've been there putting the time in for quite a while. They've gotten their 10,000 hours in, so to speak. They just really have an intimate understanding of kind of what to do. So I think really great players in anything, sports, games, I think you could kind of analyze their personality types maybe and take it from there to a point. But I don't know if poker players have a, a kind of, if great players, what their threshold of wanting to look a certain way versus just kind of playing really is i don't know i've seen a gauntlet of different personality types sort of at the top so to speak
1: is there a characteristic that you see quite often from uh, very strong poker players?
0: there's a little bit of a tenacity there even when you don't realize even when they're genuinely friendly which you do see but there's definitely a tenacity to just kind of analyze and i think when you play with certain players you can really feel that will to win that focus i mean i know these are all cliches but it is true level which one can kind of focus get into sort of some kind of a flow state and just have that next level kind of grit to just want to really duke it out i think makes a difference and yeah you do see some competitive personality types but then there then there are just these geniuses at times where sometimes i can't quite figure it out it might be more of a, a kind of i don't know there's some escapism going on with just some really bright minds who just are content to to think about poker all the time and study poker all the time and play all of the time that's another trait of great players they they're in there they're pretty deep in that life and if they're not right at this moment they have been many many times really really immersed in uh in just playing poker and the same goes for every single sport across the board and every single game the great players have only played a ton but uh, are very competitive
1: so you've both called and played a lot of super high roller tournaments is there anything you notice the best players in the world doing right doing really well that It goes unnoticed by people trying to improve, like not some like amazing bluff on the river or great call down, but just something that goes less celebrated. I
0: think they find ways to retain levels of activity sometimes. Just everybody goes card dead and everybody just has really cold spurts at the table. But there are certain players, it just feels like they're always poking around a little bit. And I think they're choosing very theoretically sound spots to do so. And it's not that easy to kind of be aligned with sort of making sure that you're entering a responsible amount of pots. I think that that you do see really great players do that a lot. And they shake off mistakes and bad beats pretty well. I mean, you can really feel when certain players just cannot shake it off. And um, you don't really feel that from, from top players too often unless they're really in a cold spell and and even then i've seen players really handle it pretty gracefully
1: so i notice that when you do commentary you do a really good job of unseeing the whole card like you see them because they're on the screen and you can yet unsee them when you analyze and accurately ponder whether a bluff or a sizing makes sense without a lot of bias towards what hands they actually play and how they interplay. So I notice this is really tough to do for my own chess commentary. For instance, when we're using like an engine or artificial intelligence while we're calling the game, if they show us a move, it's hard to like not see the move and evaluate whether the player will see it or not. Because it seems so obvious once you've seen it. It seems so obvious that they should call a bluff once you see that the guy is bluffing with a hand that he shouldn't even be bluffing with. So how do you do that? And did that come naturally or is it something you had to really consciously work on?
0: I've worked on my game in general and I've I've worked on commentating things a lot, but I don't know if if I've worked on this specifically. And I'm not even sure that I do that, but I, I appreciate that because I'm not really sure. I do try to think about what the ranges are supposed to be doing and what I could find myself doing in a spot like that. And then I will start to think about what the specific hand maybe should be doing, but sort of how we could fall into our thought patterns based on if we were in this particular hand with whatever the action may be. I don't know. I'm definitely putting an effort into to stay objective and kind of above everything. Just sort of say what's happening is is often important to me because sometimes it's not that relevant what. I'm thinking because there's just a hand going on. So I don't, I'm not really sure, honestly. But uh, yeah, just trying to think about what the Rangers are doing is definitely a start to unseeing the specific hand or the specific action.
1: Maybe that's also a part of it. It seems like you're not very judgmental when you look at the hand. So that probably helps too.
0: I really try not to be because most sports, when they kind of call the action, they sort of remove themselves from the equation as as much as they can. Poker and chess are very different than like a basketball game or, or something. But I try to be as deferential and as objective as I can. But I do like to sprinkle in relevant questions and kind of say things that are just true statements about the way the cards sort of work. I can live with that, but I don't want to be too opinionated in there because to me it, it's just sort of the job is to kind of call just say what's what's happening in a way and the analysis is sort of just makeshift analysis it's more I, I just more try to kind of say things that are basically just true.
1: Do you have any commentary favorites from outside the world of poker like people that you've looked at and gotten in something from or gotten an inspiration from?
0: I do I have I have a lot of commentary favorites the first ones were in pool. There was a gentleman, Grady Matthews, who's died, and uh, Billy and Cardona. They commentated a lot of pool matches. And, I mean, they were just unbelievable. Both great players, a lot of kind of witty banter and, and sort of a nice back-and-forth dynamic. There was a deep gravity to the events. They really cared and respected the history of the sport. And commentated some big stuff, the U.S. Open and other sort of just big prestigious pool tournaments they were just tremendous great he had a great voice he was just i mean he had a little cameo in color of money in the color of money rather where he, he put a hundred dollar bill on on the table i think he was in san antonio he had a mustache i mean he was a legend so that was like where it first started and then in boxing i i loved i love old cosell stuff he was great and uh I have a lot of favorites now. I really enjoy your commentary. I love Spidler, that he was stopped swinging by. I mean, he's tremendous. I really enjoy chess broadcasts in general. They're kind of similar to poker in a way long days games it's a different sort of thing than like a major sport
1: although because you can't talk in chess i feel like they're even more well obviously they're like more cerebral there's not as much story going on it's more Mm -hmm. abstract the game it seems nice that in poker like you also just can talk about a conversation that people are having or some kind of like subplot but thank you very much the authenticity seems to be a trademark quality of all the most popular commentators right
0: I think so some people are incredibly polished at what they do and you don't necessarily maybe the authenticity doesn't totally translate but but they're just kind of getting it done i think about this more in in maybe combat sports or football or something like that like i don't know if al michaels is coming across as incredibly authentic but he's just really polished you know what i mean but it's stuff like chess and poker and uh, uh, yeah definitely I think so you want to you want to feel that the person has conviction and conviction is is often earned by kind of one's sort of knowledge or just road travel but also just genuinely kind of laying it out there is is a good thing to a point but it's very different for everybody i guess it's hard to say but yes like authenticity is good
1: yeah you could be very polished like somebody like maurice ashley and like that is not exactly or you could be very authentic but being kind of like neither is maybe not very good
0: yeah definitely <laughs> definitely well said there's don't be neither <laughs>
1: <laughs> um but yeah so what's the best way to keep posted with you nick in what way well do you have your your twitter right that's about it isn't it nick Schulman yep. at twitter
0: yep that's me i'll be doing some commentary and, and playing some poker
1: and jack for offsuit is that a hand that we're going to see from you much in the future you
0: know we might see it get in there a little bit but it's not one of my favorites no um but uh, time and a place it might, if, you know, if, if I'm playing it in some televised event or just any no limit event in general, I will definitely think of you. And, okay. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, yes.
1: <laughs> and you'll be like ever so slightly to make that hand work for you.
0: Yes. Yes, I will. I promise.
1: Yeah. And then we'll do an addendum to this podcast. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Nick, um, at Nick Schulman on Twitter. And you can find his commentary pretty often on Poker Go. Yeah,
0: mostly on Poker Go. Thank you. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to US Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No
0: one never busts. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. Cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.